Well, hello, everyone. So good to see you and uh, be with you today. And uh, I am always looking, I always look forward to this is like my favorite moment of the week is being with all of you. And, uh, and hopefully having some good interaction even today, despite uh, what's been going on and how even in this room right here in this zoom room, we have different ideas and opinions about what has been transpiring in our in our country and in our world and um, and I recognize that and uh, and so this morning I'm tuning in first before I even started this I tuned into my own uh, person my own self to see where am I at and last night um, uh, or it, yeah I think it was last night um, uh, you know, my wife and I, Patty and I both talked about it. And uh, so I'm aware of my personal reactions to things and that I don't want to come across with any extra snark or any extra sarcasm or any of that, because that's not helpful. That's not helpful to the discussion. That may be how I feel. And I may feel even rewarded for a moment by acting in that manner. Uh, but, uh, but that doesn't produce anything really good in a long term. And whatever you produce in this world, I've learned whatever you put out, if it's if it's negative, it comes right back and it affects you. In fact, most of the time, you're the one who is most affected by your own negativity, more so than even the world around you. So um, be careful of what it is you put out because uh, scriptures also says, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's actually really good because it can kind of reveal to you what's going on internally. Uh, so that you can do some more work around that space. Uh, what I want to talk about today, and uh, we are going to look at Romans, but uh, we're going to look at Romans um, 13, and we're going to look at the passage about love. I wanted to address the first few verses about authority, uh, but given what has transpired this week, I felt it was more important, and actually dealing with what we are dealing with, I think it was more important to do that than to um, than to speak about this particular verse. I would love to come back to it because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what it means to submit to authority. Uh, but let me just say this, whatever you read in Romans 13, and it's so interesting how people will say, look, you know, when it's convenient, people will pull out, look, it says to submit to authority, right? Uh, but at the same token, uh, if you think about Paul, the apostle, uh, I just have to ask you, those of you who've read the New Testament, did Paul the Apostle follow his own, his own words by saying, submit to yourself to the authorities? Or did he himself actually get killed because of his lack of submission to authority? The answer is every scholar, 100% of all the scholars in the world, which they never agree on anything, agree on this. <laughs> he died because he couldn't stop himself from speaking out and that's what got him killed so it, it, even when he was told to stop he didn't stop and that's what eventually cost him his life so anyways there's that that is to keep in mind that there's always more to the story than simply what we look at at face value there's context there's all all sorts of other nuances to this um but what i want to address are four topics this morning and i'll do this as quickly and as briefly as i can and then open it up for your um you know, your participation, your questions, your thoughts around it. Um, but I want to talk about um, this idea that's been really confusing for a lot of folks. Um, and I posted it on Facebook. Some of you have seen it. Uh, it did receive some, some uh, 
negative pushback. <laughs> of course it would. Uh, anything you put out on anything to do with racism gets, gets that reaction. Uh, but uh, what I put on there was this confusion that we often have between the collective and the individual. And of course, I can't get into all of that in one post, um, but I can say a little bit more about it here this morning. Um, we have we have this un, this this uh, this struggle oftentimes with this concept of uh, not for liberals. Liberals have no problem with it, um, but they go to one extreme. Conservatives have a problem with it, and they go to the other extreme. Um, but there's this concept of the individual and the collective, or what we have talked about is systemic these days. What's called systemic racism. And folks have said, well, you know, I don't believe in systemic racism. Um, I think that just perpetuates the idea of victimhood. That's a, that's a, a trope that's been used, uh, I can't tell you how many times, by so many people um, who do not believe in, in institutions uh, or institutional racism or um, systemic racism. Um, so let me address it this way, and this might be helpful to understand, the concept of the individual and the, and the collective, okay? Um, before the age of enlightenment, okay, so before the, the, uh, the, the revolution of the science, when sciences became uh, really big, really well known, um, and sort of changed everything in, in our world. Prior to the age of enlightenment, uh, there, were, there was very little in the way of the concept of the individual, the way we think about the individual today. Uh, people saw themselves as part of a group, part of a tribe part of a larger um, society. In uh, Rome, actually, in which it gives the context of a lot of scripture, scriptures written in the context of Roman experience, Roman thought, at least the New Testament. The idea of the city, the people, uh, was that the people or the city was both inside you as an individual and you were part of the city. And so the, the, there, was, there was the sense of like, I can accomplish things on my own, or that whatever I do has zero impact on other people or nobody else should care what I do individually. That's not a concept that was ever, ever in history, human history. All right, so this is brand new in terms of the spectrum of 10,000 years of human civilization. Very new. <laughs> if you think about it, it's only a few hundred years old, only a couple hundred years old, and we're still testing this theory out. I don't think the theory's wrong. I just think it's, it's not the way we've always thought. And so we should under, take perspective, larger perspective, to understand maybe we've lost also some things from ancient history simply because of, of newer understanding. So people saw themselves as part of a, of a larger group of people. So your name, if you were Hubbard, you didn't see yourself as just, I'm Joel Hubbard. You saw yourself as I'm a Hubbard. In fact, that's sort of more, if we were to do it today, we would actually say, introduce yourself by your last name. Be like, I'm Hubbard. Why? Because I'm not an individual, I'm a part of a collective, I'm part of a larger group, and I represent that group within me, right? Um, so um, this concept of the individual and the collective was very, very, uh, is, is very, very important for us to understand. And this is where a lot of the disagreements get caught, is that this sort of personal individual responsibility and rugged individualism, and I've accomplished this on my own, and I'm a self-made millionaire, self-made billionaire, and all this other uh, sort of really nonsense is the idea that somehow I, on my own, apart from everybody else, and by the way, 
way, not really affecting anybody else because it's my life, my world, is not, first of all, concept, even remotely. In fact, the Bible is exactly the opposite. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and about all the texts that support this idea of we're a group, we're much more of an organism. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul says you are a body, right? You're a body, you are a an entity, you're part of an, of an organism, right? So this is when Paul says, when one part hurts, the whole entire part hurts. That's the idea of systemic. That's the idea of a system. Uh, and so when we're speaking about things like systemic racism, we're speaking about a system that has this on that it affects and goes on and affects all other parts of the system, right? Um, when you think about things like um, what happens at one level happens in other uh, at other levels. Um, when we think about churches, I'm part of a system, part of a denomination. Um, I would have never thought of systems until I was part of a denomination, and then I had to learn about systems in seminary, and I even had to learn about how systems work in the Bible. It was, it was fascinating to me when I began to understand how even Daniel and the book of Daniel, when he speaks of political systems as beasts, right? the concept of the beast itself is that the system has become so bad that it has become like an animal. It consumes. Right? And so Daniel speaks about these systems that have gone bad and that affect people in negative ways. Um, and so when I began learning about this in seminary, and then I became a pastor in a church, in a denomination, I began to see it, that, wow, I'm affected by a system. The system has certain beliefs, certain policies, certain, you know, things you don't say. And I would find out because I'd say something, and then it was met with, like, real silence around me. It was nobody wanted to talk about that issue. I, I realized, oh, there's, there, there's, some, there's a thing going on here, that, and I'm so ignorant of this stuff because... I'm so self-referencing and so individual that I think in terms of, well, you just be yourself and say what, what's on your mind. And I'd realize, oh, no, there's a collective here. And if I say certain things, that, if, that there's a sort of a collective response to that. Um, and we don't talk about that. And, um, and that's why also institutions turn on, on individuals. And we've seen this happen in our, in our churches and our denominations and in many other denominations where the individual themselves, you know, will get tossed aside for the sake of the institution's preservation. The institution is one thing in mind, and it's protecting itself over the, over the individual. And you've experienced that because wherever you've been, if you've been a victim of something, you'll find out very quickly where the interests lie. Because if you speak up as a victim, because you've been victimized by something, let's say you were fired unfairly, Right? and you try to fight that, you'll find out very quickly that there is a system, and the system thinks about itself, and everybody who was, who was sort of like your friend, if they're part of that system, for their own self-preservation, they're going to um, side with the system. Um, so this is the, a bit of the idea of, of, of uh, systemic, what's called systemic racism, and so I wanted to set this up because I want to deal this morning with what's a bit about what's happening in our world and give some, maybe some ways of thinking about this that could be helpful and give some biblical ways of thinking about this that get at the whole. This isn't about policy. This isn't about a left policy, a leftist policy or a right policy. This is about <clears throat> a biblical way of really, in a, in a, and not only a biblical, but a, but a, um, 
uh, well, it's biblical. To, to, it is a biblical way, I was going to say. But even thinking about like, what's a, what's a healthy response uh, that is out of love? And I think we're informed by scripture that that's how we're to approach this is, are we being moved by love or are we being moved by something else? You know, are we being driven by love and truth, you know, grace and truth, or are we being guided by something else? So the first thing was to just say a little bit about this idea of systemic racism and what it does in terms of how it affects uh, people and people of color. And that is that their experience of it is that when we act a certain way, when we move about in the world, just as anybody else would move about in the world, there are different experiences that we as people of color have than do people who are predominantly white. Um, <clears throat> and again, one of the things I want to say about this is that, um, so now we're moving to bias. I want to talk a little bit about bias is that there's a, an instant reaction from many people, including me, who want to say, well, wait, <clears throat> there's, you, there's personal responsibility. Like the way you respond as an individual, that's on you. Uh, whether you're a person of color or not, it's on you, right? Um, but what I have to pay attention to is what my biases are. Now, we all have them, right? So this is sort of neurosciences um, just uh, give a lot of, uh, of, of uh, data and, um, and the science behind how our brain works. And so we're all biased. We all curate certain truths or facts to support our biases. We, we all do that. And so you take one story, and it's interesting how one story that we've all maybe heard, and we'll all tell the story about what took place, for example, the murder of, of George Floyd, um, well, we can repeat the story pretty much the same, but then what we'll do is we'll focus on a particular interpretation of that story. And so one of the questions we need to ask ourselves regularly is why am I focusing on this interpretation? And why am I curating these, these supposed facts about race or facts about police enforcement, law enforcement, um, why am I taking these facts and creating a story around them? Do I even see that I'm doing that? And though if I don't see that I'm doing that, can you see that others are not, are doing something different with their set of facts, right? And so if someone else is saying, is telling uh, the same story, but they have a different interpretation, and then they're curating a different set of facts, than you or me, then that itself sort of reveals to us that we have different lenses. We have different biases through which we see. All right, so that's helpful for us to understand that and to just be okay with that. That's, it's fine. There's nothing, it's like, you don't, you don't have to feel terrible about yourself for having a bias. It's just, that's where we start. We start with acknowledging that's true. I have a bias, you have a bias, we all do. And so what we have to do then is to ask ourselves, why, are th why is, do they have a different story than I do that surfaces perhaps a bias in me and a bias in them, right? And then what we do is we move towards, how do we ascertain the truth then? How do we get to truth? 
Well, we get to truth by actually listening to the stories of other people, as I mentioned last week. We actually start to listen to their interpretation. What is their focus? Why are they focusing on that? Now, who do we listen to is the third question we have to ask ourselves. Who do we listen to? Uh, do we listen to people that support our bias and agree with us? Or do we actually listen to people who, buy, who, who have a different one than we do? And uh, do we favor one over the other? And this is where it gets dicey, right? Because then we say, well, you know, we don't want to uh, favor everybody's viewpoint. You know, we want, to, we want it to be all equitable, right? And we want it to be all fair. And we want people to merit. So we live in a sort of meritocracy where you have to earn, you know, whatever it is you get. Um, but there are uh, biblical, there's a ton of this whole idea of how does the Bible see those who are in the minority, the minority voice? How does the Bible treat minority voices? Now think about that for a moment. If you think about who are the people who wrote the Bible, were they the people that were um, in the majority? Or were they the people who were in the minority, who held the minority view? <laughs> think about Genesis. Think about it. Think about, think about um, the Jewish people. Up, up, there, were a, there was a period of time where they were the majority, right? That was under King David. And when they had ascended to their glory, where they were the strongest nation, most glorious nation at the time, right? So they were then the majority. But while they were the majority, who was writing the scriptures? They were the prophets who were the ones who were the minority voice, who were not living oftentimes within Israel or in the, you know, among the people, they were actually living off into the desert in the wilderness because they were the minority voice. So the perspective from scripture is always written, always written by people who were oppressed, who were the minority voice, including the person that we have given our lives to, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the minority voice of a minority group, and yet the disciples were the ones who were writing his stories uh, and his words down and beginning to follow them. Um, the additional thing I want to say about that piece, and then we'll move on, is that um, the voice of the minority in Scripture is favored even within among the minority authors, they were favored and viewed not in the sense of, um, okay, we're going to flip the tables now and the minority are going to be in power over the majority. That's not the, that's the idea of revolution. And biblically, that doesn't, that's never endorsed and it doesn't really work. It's not about that. It's not about let's flip the tables. It, it, it's about understanding that in the scriptures, there's a favor that God gives by listening to those who are oppressed over those who claim that these people are lazy. For example, if you think about Pharaoh, Pharaoh's comment about the Jewish people was what? That they were lazy. And so he puts them to work. They're lazy slaves. They're lazy uh, employees. They don't work hard. They should work harder. And so he, he doesn't listen to them, but God listens to them. 
And so God frees them. And then we have in uh, Exodus 22, verse 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. I'm going to show some of these scriptures in a moment, but um, there's, there's a few of them, so I don't want to bounce around from screen sharing too much here. So Exodus 22, verse 22, you can write that down <clears throat> or look it up on your device or your Bible if you have it in front of you. But um, Exodus 22, do not take advantage of the widow or fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me. And I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Now, this may have caught God on a bad day, uh, but if you look at Exodus 22, that's a, that, is, that is sort of the flow of what you see by the minority uh, or the main, minor, what's called the minor prophets, who oftentimes speak about this issue of uh, injustice. And injustice was not individual justice, it was collective justice, it was group justice. So when the minority prophets are talking about this, they're saying, look, this is a group. Now look at Exodus 22, when I just read this to you. Do not take advantage of the widow or fatherless. Um, the, the thing I want you to notice is that they're named. They're named as a group. They're not named as, it's not individuals or it's not some, something like, oh, we should take care of the poor. Right? We should take care of the disadvantaged. We should take care of the people that don't have power. It's very important to actually name groups, to say, this is a group, because otherwise we can shirk our responsibility and just say, ah, it's just the, the poor. Yeah, we'll take care of the poor. It's like, but are you taking, but let's name the group. Let's name them, give them a name, and actually honor them that way and begin to hold ourselves accountable. Right? So if the widow and the orphan are not just widow and orphan, if we were to take that to today, we would say, this is representative of groups of people who do not have the same agency, the same level of power, the same level of freedom that others do. This is very difficult for, for me to hear, and I don't like it either. I don't, as a white person, as a person who, um, who feels like I've had to work hard all my life too, now, I don't like hearing this. I want to I wanna shirk my responsibility. I want to kind of move away from that and, and maybe say that other people, you know, other people, everybody, you know, we all, we all need to work hard and just kind of get away from that and not deal with it. But I have to pay attention to if I'm going to be scripturally based, and I have to, and I think we all do, we all want to be scripturally based, is that we have to look at how does the Bible view this and how does it handle things on in a large scale like the big the macro how does it handle the issue of those with less authority less agency less power less freedom less wealth versus those who have more now there isn't there isn't this sort of narrative in scripture where it's like oh yeah so those who have less agency less power less authority they're off the hook they get no they, there's no responsibility there's no that's not the way it treats it it treats it with like, you have, you have authority and you, you, you have responsibility, even if you're the victim, you do, you do. And that's good to know because then there's things you can do that you're empowered to do to change your circumstances as well. And you shouldn't as those who are uh, with less power, less agency, less wealth, less, you can't then go to those with even less than you and mistreat them, right? This is also how scripture treats it by saying that if you do, this is why judgment is coming on all, right? 
So let me just say a by the way to this. That was actually happening. So the uber powerful and wealthy were oppressing those who were less so, and those who were less so were oppressing those who were less so, and it just cascaded all the way down. So nobody was guiltless of oppression in, in, in ancient Israel. And so this is the idea of um, a system or collective sin or how it would be referenced or spoken about by Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans, which he treats sin like a disease to be healed rather than sin to be punished. It's treated as disease to be healed because it had spread. It had become something infectious, and it has made its way through the entire organism of the collective. And so um, what he does is not to say, so back, in, back to the, um, what, where I was going with this, he's not saying that those who are oppressed then do not have any responsibility. They're off the, they're off the hook. But what he does is to be careful about saying those with greater agency, greater power, have also greater responsibility for how they handle that. And if they don't handle it well, and they're oppressive, they will be judged with greater judgment than those with less power and less agency. Does that make sense? That's fair. That's justice. And it's hard to accept if you're in the position of having a little bit more than someone else, but it's true. And it's something that we have to wrestle with as, uh, as people. Um, okay. So, um, so I want to um, now move to, um, well, let me do the, the I was going to do the, the Romans 13, but I'm going to finish with that. So the next one I want to talk about is um, being a false witness. So all of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, I'm sure by now. You've heard the Ten Commandments, even if you can't quote them. Um, one of them is the one that uh, I remember as a kid, do not do not lie, right? How many of you remember that one as a kid? That was used a lot by, by those in authority, parents and teachers. Don't lie. Remember the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, uh, and so that one was often used um, as a way to monitor behavior. Um, the actual way that that Ten Commandments, that one of the Ten Commandments is uh, stated, is do not bear false witness. And that is far more the context of what is going on. Let me explain that uh, very briefly. I can't, I can't treat this the way I would like to, but Leviticus 19, and this is a fairly lengthy passage. I'm not going to um, read the entire thing here, but in there, Leviticus 19 repeats some of the commandments and starts with verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Verse 12 says, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now look at the context. It continues. Right, so do not swear falsely. See the, I want you to see the correlation to the following verses. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Okay. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. 
Don't go about spreading slander among your people. Do not say anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Do not use dishonor, do not do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest skills and honest weights, an honest ephaf, and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and follow all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. So okay, so this context of don't um, don't bear false witness. Um, has to do with what was common in the ancient world, which was that in order, if you were lived next to your neighbor uh, and you saw that his land was attractive and, and you wanted it, and he had, let's say, many servants, many um, many working for him, uh, he was he was wealthy. His land produced lots of of of, of food of of uh, crops, and he had lots of cattle, and they were all healthy and they were reproducing. It was super tempting at times for people in the ancient world to then say, um, how do I get a hold of this? How do I possess this? How do I take this? And so what they would do is they would begin to devise a plan and a plot. And the plan would be that they would somehow um, uh, um, bring a case against them where they had done something wrong, so wrong that it would deserve them to lose their property against you. They had committed a crime against you. And they needed to repair that, and therefore it would be their land, their possessions that would come to you. So what they would do is then they would hire false witnesses, liars, to support that claim. And then you would show up before the judge, and you would make your case, and the witnesses, and they needed at least two uh, witnesses, would then say, yes, this is true, we saw this happen. And then they would lose their land. Their land would go to this other individual. Now, the more that this individual acquired in terms of land and possessions and power and wealth, the more that they could keep doing that over and over again um, and then um, impoverish other people and enslave other people. Okay? So this is the context of the ancient world. Do not bear false witness. Now, let me bring it into today. Bearing false witness to me, and this is a bit of a stretch, but I think it still works, is that oftentimes what we do today is to continue to perpetuate stories about other people, particularly people of color, um, that continue this, uh, this um, behavior of, uh, of not giving the same fair access uh, to people of color that uh, people who are you know, predominantly white have. Um, it continues to create many difficulties and systemically, uh, that has been true. And so I think as people of God, we need to bear right witness. We need to hear the truth, even though it goes against sometimes our biases, we need to hear the voices of others and actually begin to bear true witness. Right? And in that way, we begin to speak the truth that begins to set people free. And I think that's our, our role as people of God. Um, <clears throat> Lastly, let's look at um, Romans 13, and then um, we'll open this up for, uh, for some, some questions and conversations. Uh, Romans 13, and I will do the share screen here. So this verse. 
So this is the uh, verse 8, uh, Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to continue to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to the neighbor. Love, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this is also, you know, Paul hailing back to the Old Testament and hailing back to even what would have been his ancient culture, his ancient world, where the commands, if you notice the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. I mean, if you think about like, you shall not commit adultery, we think of those romantic flings that sometimes happen in this world today. That's not the context of this. This is the context of committing adultery is part of the way that in the ancient world, you would take over someone else's property and you would, you would disinherit them. And I won't get into inheritance and disinheritance. That's, that's a whole lengthy uh, explanation of the ancient world. But if you were to look this up, you'll find this. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it starts to tie in all these commands in an incredible, makes all the sense in the world. The whole thing of you shall not murder again, it's about murdering and taking what belongs to someone else. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Coveting someone else's property, right? Bearing false witness, as I had already mentioned, was, was in there. So this is uh, love your neighbors yourself. Love does no harm, right? And therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So the question I have for us, and just in closing, for us to think about, I mean, we don't have to answer this here, but is um, if we were to ask the African-American community, people of color, uh, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to continue to love one another. If we were to ask them, do you feel like you have been well-loved by the community of white people? I wonder what the answer would be. Um, because I've asked, I've you know not directly asked this particular question, but because I've asked uh, many people of color over the many years that I've been thinking about this, um, and these are people that trust me, so I can ask that question. These are people that I've had long conversations with, already developed friendship with. I don't just come up randomly to people and ask them that question. Um, but the answers that they have entrusted to me carefully, and they're tired of answering some of the um, questions that, that they are being asked these days. But it's that the answer is, unfortunately, no. My experience has not been that. And so... Um, but that's what I would, but, but in some cases, you know, they have said, oh yeah, these people, these people love me very well. And I'm, and I'm really blessed by that. And that's been awesome to hear, particularly in our community. I've been so proud of so many of you in our church who um, I can't tell you what I hear from others, uh, but it's, you know, and not just people of color, but just how loving most of us uh, have been or how we've experienced love from one another has been just outstanding. And I think we are a loving community um, for the for the whole on the whole, but I think we can grow. We can stand to grow, and in this space that we understand that there's a debt that Paul says we have a debt, and let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of continuing to to outdo each other in a space of love. And so that's what I would ask: is if you were to listen to the voice of the other. Um, and that's the one point I forgot to make to, to, to make uh, clear, I don't think, is that 
the one thing that is so remarkably clear about Exodus, remember Exodus 22, where I read that part with, with the orphans and widows and how God says, if they cry out to me, you know, um, I will come against you. Is it interesting to you that God doesn't go, well, hold on, let me ask the others to see if they feel, how they feel about it. The ones who've been oppressing you, you claim to be oppressing, let me ask them what they say. And then God says, oh, they say that you're just lazy and you're not doing your job. I, you, you never see that. Not, and not, I'm not just highlighting this text. This is an example of the minor prophets and the way they deal with this. It's overwhelmingly God says, I listen to the cry of the collective, not of an individual, but of the collective of those who are in the minority. And when they cry out to me because of their oppression, I will hear them. Right? And so I think we need to to, to just take that into consideration as well is let's be on the side of God and let's partner with God. And I think if we're going to be on the side of God, we're going to be on the side of the people who are crying out and we're hearing them today. And I'm excited because I think for the first time in a long time, I'm depressed, I'm angry, but I'm also hopeful. I shouldn't say excited. I'm hopeful for the first time. I think we're hearing and many are hearing and i'm hearing stories of people friends of mine even who have never believed in systemic racism who have never believed in it who are saying i'm getting it i get it i get it and so i'm hopeful that this could be a turning point in our country and uh and i i believe that vine 39 uh could play a role in that we're small uh, but i think we can play a big role in being among those who help uh, to turn that tide. Go ahead, Liz. Morning, everybody. Um, as I was reading over Romans 13 this morning, um, there's one part that, that really, um, touched me. Um, it's, uh, Romans 13, 12. And, uh, it says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. And the context right before that, it, uh, starting with 11 is, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Um, my question is, what do we do for those of us that don't feel like the night is far gone? That and that the day is at hand for those of us who feel like we are in a very dark time and seeing yeah. a lot of um, sadness and ugly reactions um, from people who feel threatened by their their day-to-day -day, um, existence. I guess I'm, this week for me, I was really surprised to hear from fellow white people how often they were not ready to hear some of these voices of our brothers and sisters in color and um just wondering how you continue to search for the hope um in this period of darkness mm. yeah yeah it's a difficult it's a difficult uh task for sure and i think um you know if anything um we're gonna we're gonna have to 
pace ourselves over time because this is not a this is not something that I think we're going to conquer in a week or in a month. Just like with the coronavirus, you know, it's been really a, a lesson in how to maintain our sanity and our and our peace and our you know our joy it, because this is not short one. This is a this is a lot longer than what we've. Uh, what we've dealt with before. And this issue with race is going to be one that's going to continue for a while. But um, I think part of it is understanding what you can do in, in this moment, like what is within your control. Uh, I think that oftentimes we try to control things that we can't, like I can't, I definitely can't affect the world. So I have to somehow tune that out. And I have to know when I should tune that out. And I don't always do that right. Um, but to tune out like social media, to tune out um, TV, radio, and, um, and to uh, tune back into what is it that I can do right here and right now. Um, because the overwhelming amount of data, information, bad news that we can't do anything about can really depress us. And I think it's pulling away from that and then going back to what is it that I can do because in the act of doing, there's an act of there's a there's a sense of of agency and of and of of, uh, of power, and that feels good to be able to do something. Um, and so I think that's the balance we're going to have to learn increasingly how to walk, and uh, hopefully that that can help us um, to sustain through this long term challenge. Again, what I would encourage us as we transition to worship is. Um, to be a, the people uh, of God. And the people of God um, are ones that um, we do our best, do our best to tune into our biases. We do our best to become aware that there are people who, while we may feel that we don't have uh, all the agency and the power and the wealth in the world, that there are those, and those are the people of color, who oftentimes have more against them and are in the minority and collectively as a whole are saying, please hear us. And, um, and we can do that. We can begin to say, yes, we will. We are gonna be a people who are gonna be with uh, the, uh, the people of God and the people of God have always done that. Um, and be aware that of course, there'll be those posts of um, the, 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 the black person who is supporting our biases as white people, there are going to be plenty, there's going to be plenty of those posts and reposts. But then ask yourself this question, are the people of color the ones who are posting and reposting these posts that we're reposting and posting? Uh, and if by and large, the majority are saying, no, this is our experience, and the ones that are your friends that you care for, that you love, and that you listen to carefully are saying, no, my experience is this, then I think we as the people of God, if we're going to be on the side of right, we're going to stand up and we're going to take the, we're going to take the right, we're going to, we're going to take the right side. I don't like to talk about sides, but we're going to take the right side. And we're going to say, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stand in solidarity not with a political position. We're gonna stand in solidarity with the people of color who are saying collectively, this is how we've been treated. This is our experience. 
And it is over and over and over again. And it has been ever since I was a child. And we're going to say, I hear you. And I will walk with you. And I will stumble and I will make mistakes and I won't get it right. But we're going to stand with you. And I think we can make a declaration as people of God to say, yes, that is our position. And I urge you and I encourage you. And I'll tell you from a prophetic standpoint, my brothers and sisters, I, Joel Hubbard, will stand in solidarity as your pastor with people of color. I'm tired of being quiet about it. I'm tired of trying to tiptoe around it. I have friends, dear friends, who I have wept with, people of color, who work so hard, who never play the victim. But this has been their collective experience over and over again. And so it's, it's time for the Church of Jesus Christ. And it may not be the institutional church, but it's time for the church that is the mystical church of Jesus Christ, the people who are on the side of justice, to say, I will stand in unity, in solidarity with Black people in America and across this world, because justice has to be for all people and not just for people of uh, uh, people who are white or people who are wealthy. This is the stand that I'm inviting all of us to as a church, as a community.